podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Let us start with Kennedy, who says, do you think javelin uh, throwers, javeliners, I'm not sure either, uh, would be able to transfer well to fast bowling? Um, So fast bowling is quite interesting. I had an American athlete recently, I think, I think he was an NFL player. Uh, well, sorry, I shouldn't say NFL. He was a college footballer who knew he probably wasn't going to go on to the NFL. Who said he was going to? Um, he was under wondering if he could become a fast bowler. And uh, and I couldn't think of a cert, uh, of a person who had become a fast bowler who hadn't bowled, you know, before the age of fifteen or sixteen. So it, it to me seems to be something that is maybe a little bit more unique. I remember having a fight with a. Um, uh, I want to say a scientist, but he may not have been, uh, but it was someone to do with uh, uh, academics. And he was saying that um, China could go from nowhere to the world's best test team in five years. And I was saying you can't because a lot of the things that you do in cricket are completely alien if you have not played cricket. Whereas there are other things where, uh, you know, you might be able to modify a jump or a throw or anything else um, for some other sports, but in cricket specifically, it does seem that there needs to be an accrued level of knowledge that comes up with cricket, uh, you know, that is passed down by generations, which is why we see generations slowly get better and then get to a certain point. And we don't see flare up nations very much. And the only one that we've really seen ever is Afghanistan. And to be fair, a vast majority of their cricketers actually grew up in a, in a country with all that knowledge already there. Even if you want to look at Ireland, uh, you know, their golden generation, so many of their players grew up playing in counter cricket as well or going to school in England um, or whatever that may be. So I have heard a theory that, from fast bowling coaches that, that suggests that javelin throwers could do that. I've also heard a theory that bowlers should run in a little bit more like javelin throwers as well. So that is the one I've heard the most of. I don't really see it. As far as like um, uh, what elite performers of other sports you think would transfer well into cricket, the tennis players, I suppose, I suppose in some ways, a tennis player is maybe a little bit too tall now. Perhaps, you know, tennis players of a previous generation when, you know, cricketers and tennis players, even then, batters were smaller, weren't they? Um, so I'm not sure about that. Yeah, that that's a really interesting one. Um, obviously, baseball fielders and cricket would be quite handy, but you're not going to have a specialist fielder. I don't know. It, it's such a peculiar sport in so many different ways. It'd be very hard if you had a baseball background to work out cricket, whereas I think it would be easier, although obviously we've seen a couple of pro cricketers not make it in baseball, but I think it would be slightly easier to go the other direction. I think it would be hard to say that, say, Chris Lynn or Adam Gilchrist, um, Andre Russell, those sorts of players, you know, if at 25 or 26 they wanted to cross over, I think it would be easier for them to cross over than it would be for Mike Trout to cross over into cricket. So tennis plays is an interesting one because it's a, it has some of the best athletes in the world and you have to have great hand-eye coordination. You also have to read the path of the ball 
when it's going up in the air. So when it when it it's a bit like cricket, you know, if the serve goes to, if the hand goes to this side or the ball goes to this side, you have to be reading the everything. That's very similar against cricket, which obviously baseball has as well. Um, but I, I just I don't know. There's there's if you haven't played and you're like a twenty year old, let, let's let's say there was someone like. Alex Carey, who came from another sport, but let's pretend Alex Carey had never played before. And he's 20 and we suddenly put him in and he comes from Aussie Rules football and he's a great athlete and he's got a great attitude and he works really hard. There's just so many things to learn. I'm not sure it's, you know, a particularly easy sport to do that, whereas clearly we've seen you know, other sports where you can be a very late learner um, and pick them up. Good question, though. And what a way to start. What an opener. Thank you, Kennedy. Not that I picked it because it was an open, but just it's where AJ put it on the list. <laughs> Satchmo says Viv Richards averaged 62 in March 1981, but 50 when he retired. He averaged 42.85 in the last 10 years. Does this indicate a significant decline? Now, if you want a significant decline, I think you want to look at his last three years. Um, my, I don't think he averaged 35 in the last three years. I'm trying to remember now. He, I really struggled at the end. It was certainly that's the real decline era. I think if you look at Richards's record, it is it's wild how inconsistent he is. It's not how we think about him now, but I think in I think this is right. He makes seventeen hundred and ten runs in eleven tests in nineteen seventy five or nineteen seventy six, and then next year I think he averages less than twenty nine. And part of it is probably the, the schedules that he played and, and how he went. The interesting thing you talk about there, 1981, he dominates one-day cricket for five or six years at that point. And I mean all-time dominating. Like, you know, it, it might that might have been the best one-day player we've ever had at times in that period. Uh, and so if he's declining, it's really weird that it's not happening in both. My, my guess is that a lot of it is just the weird schedules that they played. The, but if you really want something interesting that I did find, I think from 1975 to 1982 or 83, he plays around 25 to 30 ODIs. He then plays almost that many the next, the following year or that year. And then from then on in, he's playing 25 to 30 um, ODIs. But obviously the tests sort of go up and down. Some years he only plays three tests and other years he plays 11 and 12 and, and these sorts of numbers. So the numbers that really vary in the tests, whereas in the ODIs, once he starts playing a lot of ODI cricket, he just absolutely smashes it everywhere. So I don't think there was a decline um, until the end. Certainly, he's you know he, he's a player who probably averages 53, 54 maybe uh, if he retires when it was obvious that he was past his best. Uh, you know, Ricky Ponting, probably another player that did that. You could argue um, Satchin was maybe another player that did that. The, the absolute greats kind of have to call it quits themselves, right, or, or they go on and on. Um, and I think in that situation, uh, it would be fair to say uh, that he probably went on a little bit uh, more than he should have. Uh, I have one other really, really good point uh, when, when it comes to all this that I've forgotten what it is. No, I, but, but I do think when you change your style, when you change your load management and everything else, uh, you know, it does it does affect what you specifically get good at. He seems to have taken Monday cricket just from his numbers. He seems to have taken Monday cricket a little bit seriously, more seriously than anyone else. And so, throwing himself into so many games a year, I mean, you know, some of the the, the the games totals he had is phenomenal for for that era. Um, does suggest that uh, 
he was changing his outlook on on cricket a little bit and maybe that affected it the only other thing i would say is late 70s to early 80s my guess is bowling attacks get a maybe that's not true though Actually, maybe the late 70s is actually one of the tougher periods. There is a period in his career where it was bad. My overall point would be, if he finishes with an average of 50, he certainly played through a tougher era. If you, if, if you, if you batted from 2000 to 2015, like someone like Kumar Sangakara, you have a phenomenal record because that is a great batting era. That doesn't mean that Kumar Sangakara is not great. It means that his numbers look a little bit better because of that era. Uh, Radman and George Headley probably have similar inflation, uh, Wally Hammond as well. Whereas you have to then do the opposite. So for players like Jafford Mean, Dad, uh, Alan Border, Martin Crow, um, you know those sort of greats from late seventies through to early nineties, e- even to mid late nineties, really tough um, to keep that average of, uh, above fifty for any of them. Right? It's just not something that happens that much unless you, you're Imran Khan, apparently. But hey, he's out of control. Renee says, uh, what could the ceiling be for Washington Sunda? <laughs> I think he has more ability than Jadeja or Ashwin uh, when they started. Um, hmm, I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, right now, I don't see India using him properly. They're still treating him like a project player rather than giving him more responsibility. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of how old Ashwin was when I first saw him. 2008. Yeah, he's certainly not more talented as a bowler than young Ashwin, I don't think. Jadeja is a bit weird as a bowler, uh, but obviously as a batter, was probably better than Sundar. We made, what, 93 triple 100, test triple 100. I'm sorry, first class triple 100s by that point. Uh, so, yeah, take that in any direction that you want uh, from that perspective. But I wouldn't say he was more talented than either of them. What I would say at the moment is he's a tall off spinner, and they have, enough, they have a tall off spinner who's better than him, who's Maybe not as good a batter in all conditions, but certainly in certain conditions is a very good batter. Brilliant yeah, strategy as well. You know, the sort of person you want around your team. I'm not saying that Sundar can't turn into that, but very few young players are at that level automatically. Look, you won't find many people. I, I bought him at a very, very young age. Um, I was... Um, it says he's 21. He must be older than 21, surely. Don't want to look up his age, but you did say that, Renee. He doesn't feel like he's 21, but I think he's a little bit older than that, but maybe you're right. Um, I, I bought him in 2018 uh, when I was with RCB and was saying to them, you have to get this guy. What are you doing? Um, I'm trying to remember the player was. They were also looking at that stage, but clearly he was the one that they needed to be involved with. They never quite got him. I don't think India have quite got him either, but to be fair to India, Akshar Patel, Ravi Jadeja, you know, R. Ashwin, just your finger spinners alone, all have batting talent as well. I'm not sure that they need to do anything particularly um, silly with him. My big thing would be he just needs to play overseas as much as possible. Get him overseas as much as possible. Let's see what what he develop it, uh, develops into. Probably try and get him a county season. Pro- certainly play as much A cricket as possible. Um, in a perfect world, you'd want him to play in some overseas T20 leagues. That's obviously not going to happen. Uh, but that's how I would want to develop him. But I, d- I certainly don't think he'll be as good a player as Jadeja or Ashwin. But I'm only saying that because they're two absolute, you know, Indian greats. Uh, and not that far away from being all-time greats. You could probably already make it. F- if they both retired now, you'd have to make a pretty good argument for both of them. 
especially with latter half Jadeja's um, uh, career. And Ashwin is just an absolute master of, of what he does. Um, to say that Sundar has that in him, I don't know. I kind of feel like he does because I do read him that highly. But I do wonder over a long period of time if his bowling is quite strong enough and his batting is quite strong enough. I just want him to have one locked-in skill where I'm like, great, we can bat at number six. Or, great, it's your automatic um, first spinner. And at the moment, I just feel like he's neither of those things. But young all-rounders talk about it on this podcast all the time, right? It takes time to develop. Um, So usually you would have a a situation with like Jadeja or Vittori, Ben Stokes, where you're like, yeah, well, he can develop because... Sundar just feels just a step below that. But I think he's a fantastic talent. And um, there's no rush, I suppose, is the other thing. You've got incredible players around him. In fact, having them him on tour with them, coming off the, you know, they come off the field and you ask them why they did what they just did. All those sorts of things count. James says, do you think that neutral umpiring at international levels had cascading effects to improving umpiring at lower levels? Or is it purely up to the governing bodies at those levels? Um Look, I have, I mean, I don't know if umpiring at club levels is any better. <laughs> Last time I played club cricket in England, it was not um, particularly good. What I would say is this. I think DRS changed the way we think about LBWs. That certainly, from having played a little bit of club cricket, has seeped into it a little bit more at lower levels. Uh, I think having international... Um, I think having uh, neutral umpiring in international cricket is just an easy win um, and, a, and a simple situation and takes the heat out of political tensions and everything else. I think, ha- but more importantly, it's less about the neutral umpiring at international level. And I think what actually has had the effect is having a system of professional umpires who then filter back down to lower levels and coach people. And there's obviously a lot better training av- available. I think before there wasn't maybe the... Uh, there wasn't really a reason to have great umpires. I know that sounds stupid, but I'm not sure you would have ever invested in it or worried about it. You would just, just hope someone got good and then you would pick them more often. Um, and we know that the quality of umpiring in places like Pakistan and Australia was pretty poor. Um, India, probably another one. Um, you know, there were certain countries where, for whatever reason, good umpires weren't coming through. Um, New Zealand maybe is another one as well. Some were, some were biased, um, uh, you know, and then there was natural biases put through and everything else. But there's a big difference between that and the professional level of umpires, I think, come through now and the training. That all comes from the neutral umpires from the ICC having to pay for that pool. But I don't think the actual neutral side of it makes a difference if that's specifically what your question is. Uh, Christian says, really interesting to hear you talking about Temba Bavuma's ODI success. What's the future for players whose best format is 50 overs? That, yeah, it's quite interesting. Would they be better off trying to improve their white ball or red ball games if there isn't a long-term future in ODIs? Well, white ball is ODI, but I think you need T20 or test, which is fair. Hmm. He's not going to drop off. Well, I mean, he has improved his test game. So in his particular case he's probably going to hang around a little bit as a test batter. So I don't think that's the end of the world. I certainly think that there is enough money in you fo- in certain countries, at least, in, in certainly following that. Like if you can be a, a average to slightly better than average test player and a, you know, plus ODI player, you, you should still get county contracts and you'll still get international contracts. Um, there still should be... Uh, 
positions for you and then you know finances that back that up it if we're talking about in 10 years time where world cups are the only uh, you know only major one day is that are left i think at that point yeah you probably fair christian you have to make a decision between uh, you know the, the two different formats I, I think we will see players make decisions between the formats even more and more just because if you're a slightly above average player and you want to build a very very long career splitting your time between the three formats means you're probably not preparing yourself as well um and i suppose with someone like what chris lynn has done recently watch the video um you have the ability late in career to still pivot if you need to if there's still other options around uh, will says what sort of test career numbers would gilchrist have had if he wasn't in a weaker team or is required to bat at number four or number five my memory is that gilchrist has really good first class numbers batting at number four or number five probably also depends on what age he comes in because it's no way we see this is the big thing with gilchrist his numbers are partial he's got the adam adam voges bump right not that's not his fault he was fantastic gilchrist especially the first what 60 percent of his career the second part of his career wasn't that much better than a sort of most modern wicket keepers maybe that's unfair but he was a plus but he certainly wasn't the player he was at the at the start of his career uh I think he averaged what close to 60 for a long period there. But he came in at a peak age when he was available. So the first thing you would say is if he came in earlier, he would have uh he would have come in earlier, like way earlier, because he would have they would have needed him. They a weaker team would have needed his batting, forget about his wicket keeping. So he would have come in. What I would say is that he played a number seven role perfectly. We know that he could bat up the order because I think I'm right in saying he certainly batted up the order in first-class cricket at times, uh, certainly for New South Wales, and even as a keeper in WA, that had a stacked batting lineup. I think even there he came a little bit higher up in the order. So I don't think that would have been the issue for him. Interestingly enough, I think he would have developed very differently. I'm not sure he stops being an attacking player, but I do think that he, he it once he got worked out, I don't want to say he's we were just talking about viv richards at a certain point once people understood where to bowl to him there was a chance you know and um if that happens when he's 22 and 23 he has the chance to develop that that probably happened to him when he was 31 32 is my guess i'd have to go back and have a look at the years at that stage it would be very hard for him to change what he was doing also he was given a license so I think he probably does average less if he's batting at four or five in a weaker team. I think he comes in earlier. But I actually think he's probably a more well-rounded player and would probably be of more, he wouldn't have as good a numbers, but probably would have been of more worth to a team at that point. Um, you know, there were series and situations where Adam Gilchrist wasn't useful. You know, we, we saw moments in India where, you know, the off-spin completely bothered him. Uh, again, you're talking about a player who came into international cricket at 28, um, 27, 28, and from the wacker, suddenly playing, you know, in Sri Lanka and India and those sorts of situations was going to give him problems, uh, especially in the Red Bull game. England coming around the wicket, moving the ball away from him, you know, angling it in, which, which is funny because kind of that's what everyone does to all left-handers now. So we now know it was an Aguilchrist weakness, but maybe just a left-handers weakness. But but again, it's a similar kind of thing that you're talking about, which is uh, he. He comes in and he didn't have to develop anything. Firstly, he's batting at number seven. He comes in with a few bad situations. He comes in with a great amount of um, situations. He also has a license to attack, which gives him that. 
He would be a completely different player if he played in a weaker team. He would have come in earlier. He would have batted higher up the order. He would have developed um, much better. I don't think he would have had a good three or four years and then, you know, a couple of bad years at the end. It would have been a completely different curve from him from beginning to end. So it's a really hard question to answer. I would say you would have to knock some runs off his average. Um, but I still think he would be attacking uh, if he came in at another time, uh, if, he, if he batted early. I don't think you knock that out of him. Uh, I think that was just part of his – it was different to KP, the way that he went about it, but I think it was part of his defense was attacking. Um, and, and so, you know, him slowing down wasn't necessarily going to work for him. I'm not sure if there is a hairier sport than cricket. From the early greats WG Grace and the demon Fred Spotheth onwards, cricket has always been Hasut, Boom, Gooch and Dev with their upper lip work. Shoab and Imran's incredible manes. Not to mention Lily's incredible chest rug. Our sport loves curated hair. And so does Manscaped. They just look after the bit that you can't see. So if you want a cricket-inspired downstairs pubic mustache, we can think of no item better than the Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. Whether you're steaming in from the ladies' end or mounting a strenuous rear guard, always put your trust in Manscaped who will look after your lower order. So go to manscaped.com and buy their kit with my red inker code, all one word, and get yourself 20% off and make yourself 20% sexier. Bloody Bugger says, gambling sponsors are rare in cricket, YouTube, social media compared to other sports. Closest thing I know is the Betfair podcast. Uh, why do you think this is the case? Would you personally consider a gambling sponsor? Feels like there could be some good in- in- integrations. Uh, yeah, I've never been offered one. Uh, it depends on the gambling sponsor and what they would do. Um, actually, I was offered a deal with Paddy Power a few years ago. Uh, back, in, I might have been, must have been after I left Crick Info. But they wanted me to write on their website. Write on your website, Paddy Power's website. It just seems weird. Anyway, I offered them a piece about Mitchell Stark as a saber tooth tiger. They didn't want it. Um, yeah. The, uh, so, so from that, uh, it hasn't come in. Betway is it Betway? I think that's what they're called have sponsored um, KP and they sponsored a few other cricketers. I got something from Steve Harmison the other day, although his wasn't a direct sponsorship from a gambling place, but a gambling place used his comments. I don't ha- understand how, the, how those things work. Uh, look, I I have issues with gambling, but at a certain point, fantasy sports is gambling, and I've certainly taking, I've taken money from those uh, before. So I don't have a problem with um, the gambling industry and cricket and match fixing the way that a lot of people do. And the reason I don't is the gambling industry, the legal gambling industry, that is, it's one of the best defenses to fixing that we have because they know everything about the markets um, and they're constantly, well, not constantly, but they certainly provide feedback to boards and the ICC at times about ma- matches and about anomalies and everything else because they don't want to be ripped off either. So I don't have a problem from that perspective. I'm not a big fan of gambling. I think for me, you know, at 99.94, if a gambling network uh, was to come along, it would be it would shore up our future. So, you know, if we get a big idea like that, it would it would be the case. My guess is the reason that hasn't happened though, mate, is because um, it's gambling is uh, illegal in many cricket markets, and also it's hard to get gambling licenses that you know all right across the, the the market in the same way that perhaps you do in um, other sports that would be my assumption of why it's happened but i've been absolutely fascinated someone grew up following american sports where if they ever talked about gambling they kind of had to like 
couch it in in many other um, discussions to suddenly just like gambling is out there and you know talking about favorites and you know organizations like the action network who are basically writing about sports from a gambling perspective it's really really fascinating the kind of information that you could get and actually to come to think of it well no i certainly when i had critical balls i certainly had some gambling sponsorship so that was in those days that was about all you could get on on blogs and everything else um uh, but yes, uh, and the integrations you talk about, that's why I was thinking about the American stuff. There are some really interesting things. And if you look at my work, I quite often put the odds up just so that, you know, you could say, but this is what the market is saying at the moment. The World Cup was fascinating, uh, you know, watching the market moving around as as it was quite a random World Cup, wasn't it? You know, teams winning, losing, you know, England end up being favorite and then the Island game happens, all those things. And uh, so I do find it fascinating and uh, I'm I'm certainly not against it has to be the right company has to be the right um amount of money all those sorts of things but that's kind of the case with most of it so to be honest you know we've uh, i've been offered uh um weight loss pills and i said no because i didn't feel comfortable at it as a having it as someone who was once overweight it just didn't feel right um and i think we kind of know that they're a scam and also selling weight loss pills on the internet you know you have to weigh up every advertise and there might be another company that offers me a different product at one time um we had some of the is it cbd um one of the cbd companies uh was was in touch recently and talking about sponsorship um i don't know that much about it but you know i'm happy happily uh do some research and and have a look at those sorts of things so you know got i'm running a startup this is YouTube is one part and then the podcast is one or two parts, I suppose, of the of the startup. You've got the 99.94 things. You've got my email, um, sports writing course, all these different things. It's very hard at this stage when you're not backed by a, a major company to not take it, but you also have to be smart. You know, there's a, there's a brand uh, part of it. But as far as I can tell in cricket, it's just mostly to do with probably the Indian market and the betting there. Um, and then uh, the fact that there aren't that many companies that probably have, you know, uh, betting licenses in the majority of the cricket nations would be would be my other guess. Gary says, with no island players having played any role, red ball cricket in the last two or three years, would it actually be a sensible choice to try and emulate baseball um, in their test against Bangladesh? Well, having seen them play white ball uh, cricket, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that that would be the method I'd go with, Gary. Um, I'm assuming they've played from first-class cricket. Um, I haven't looked at the at, at how much, but there must be some, but you, you make a point and there of, you know, they might want to look at it slightly differently, but you know, you're talking about a team that had Andy McBride batting at number three, right? And probably three or four players, almost everyone was shifted up one spot or two spots at certain times. That's not, that's not comparable to what we saw in England. You know, you're not talking about Joe Root, Ben Stokes, Johnny Bairstow, you know, those sorts of players in your middle order. So, I don't think it's directly comparable, um, but but I understand your overall point. It's a really interesting thing of how islands prepare for one-off tests every now and again when they don't play that much cricket. It, it really is. It, it's it's hard to develop your skills, but it's hard to maintain them and everything else. Excuse me, everyone, um, and everything else. So, um, I, but I don't see them being able to do baseball. But hey, if they do, it'll be fun. So they should do that. I sent Andy a message. Lee says, Alex Ailes is planning to miss England's Bangladesh tour to play in the PSL, uh, which Nasser said is understandable. Yep. A player's, a player's always paid the money promised in these T20 leagues. IPL, PSL, maybe yes. 
Uh, well, no, there. I mean, I don't know about the PSL. I think most of the payments have been done, but the, I think there are still players owed money by um, IPL teams. Um, not many, to be fair, anymore. There was when I wrote an article for the Crick Info with the Guardian about it. Uh, that was only a couple of years ago. Uh, is there any chance of players missing international cricket for Mickey Mouse T20 leagues are actually worse off? So the money usually arrives. The problem with those Mickey Mouse leagues that you're talking about is when it arrives. That is usually the bigger issue. And then also, quite often, in some locations, and the UAE is probably one of them, if you want to get your money guaranteed, they give it to you in cash, which, of course, is usually too big an amount to take back into your country. I think an international player might have, well, actually, it wasn't even an international player. I think a domestic player <coughs> might have got caught bringing back too much cash into his country at one stage. Um, certainly, I've heard of incredible stories where even media members have been asked by players, can you just take this big wad of cash into the country for me? You know, players stuffing money down their underwear. Uh, I know this all sounds stupid, but this this has happened. Um, yeah, so. Yes, it's an issue. Usually the money comes, but it's really, really late, is what I would say. Uh, maybe two, three, four, five months after. Players are getting slightly better now, where if they don't, and, and I th players are now getting paid during the tournament little installments. You usually get, I don't know, 60 to 70%, maybe even 80% of your money up front. Um, the last payment, depending on the league, you can expect to wait for it. I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, Look, I'm still owed money for work I've done in cricket, and I won't get that money. So what you are saying makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's a real wild west. This is my problem with it, and I've written about this. I might have even done a video um, on here before, but you have to get a no-objection certificate from your cricket board to be able to go and play in one of these leagues. Fine. That You go and get, so I don't know, you're a Bangladesh player. You can go and get an NOC, and you can now play in a New Zealand league. You go to New Zealand, probably not the best one. I think they pay, but um, you go to New Zealand and you play and they don't pay you. Who do you go to? You would think you would go back to your board who has given, no, they don't want anything to do with it. Generally, let's say New Zealand was a franchise league. You go back to their uh, their league and they'll be like, at their board and they'll be like, well, we want, don't want anything to do with it. So you're stuck with the player. Uh, so you're stuck with the owner in that situation, which means New Zealand was the absolute wrong place to pick. You know, um, it's a terrible situation to be in. I think some leagues have started doing escrow beforehand. Um, but yeah, certainly when I was working in, in leagues, it was absolutely horrendous, which is why I've written about it so much. I mean, it has happened to me. Um, there, I don't think there are many people who've played in or played or coached or worked in multiple leagues that aren't still owed money by someone. So it is an issue. Kennedy says, how do you think teams would fare if India were allowed to field two teams at any time for international tournament? Uh, I mean, you know, we had this with the Australia A, didn't we, back in the 90s? So I think India would be pretty good. I always worry in that situation about when you have fast bowling injuries. So the Australia A situation is really interesting because obviously Australia A were destroying England and Zimbabwe. They beat Australia in one of the games and then played them in the finals. And Australia picked Paul Rifle to be their 12th man in the final so that he wouldn't have to bowl against them. Let's imagine he was just injured. Those sorts of things happen. Um, I think it was Paul Rifle. I hope I've got those details right. That, that's my memory of it all anyway. Uh, 
you know, one or two bowling injuries, even, you know, the crop that India have or the crop that, you know, England or Australia have had, New Zealand, once you start thinning it out and you've got, you know, four bowlers, four fast bowlers here and four fast bowlers there, you're getting to your eighth and ninth bowlers, you get a couple of injuries in there. And I do think uh, that's when the team would struggle. Don't think they would struggle for spin. Um, they shouldn't struggle for batting um, or wicket keepers or anything else. Um, but it's usually just that that from memory. Maybe the West Indies side, but then again, I don't think their batting was strong enough outside that main that main core of players. So they might have struggled with their batting. But the West Indies would have been a really interesting one in the eighties. Um, you know, Sylvester Clark. You know, Roddy Eswick, uh, Colin Croft, um, you know, all those sorts of uh, players, especially when, especially in the point when Kurtley and Courtney are fit. I oh, know, maybe that's not right because by then the rest of the balls have gone out. Yeah, probably have to be early 80s. Yeah, it's, I think it's just really tough. Um, I think I've proved that with my weird maths there. Uh, James says, do you think Australia's decision to play and not forfeit Afghanistan in the T20 World Cup undermines their refusal to play bilaterals on ethical grounds? Do you think other countries will follow suit and eventually create similar situations um, to South Africa or will Australia be out there on their own? I haven't heard any other countries massively interested in them in it at the moment. Probably don't play Afghanistan enough uh, for it to be an issue. Uh, do I think it undermines them? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like India-Pakistan, right? Like, you're still playing them. I, I, I don't really understand it. Um, if you're not going to play them... Uh, don't play them at all and, and take all the repercussions. You say what you want about the Sri Lankan cricket team. They refused to play Israel in a World Cup qualifier once. Uh, and that's 1979, kids, if you want to go Google that. Uh, I'm, but, yeah, I haven't heard of anyone else being massively uh, aware of it. I kind of, it's a story that's obviously happened and I've been at a distance from it and haven't been following it that closely. Um, I, think it, I think in cricket... There's so many weird political angles that you could you could take. Um, it's a really interesting one if we start to open it up. I think there's a lot of countries that would be uh, interesting from that point of view. What if a country said that um, uh, they didn't want to play Australia or England because they're offboarding uh, refugees? You know, refusing to have legal refugees in the country. It's a bit tricky. Um, it's a hard one to justify as well. Like, do you know what I mean? Most countries have something except maybe New Zealand. They probably have something. I've missed it. Ian says, having watched South Africa win the ODI series versus England, how likely is it that they manage to still mess it up versus the Netherlands? Uh, and if you were the Netherlands coach, how would you go about being uh, the banana skin? Look, I, I don't think South... I, I think South Africa played really good cricket against England, and obviously England's a much better team than the Netherlands. I didn't watch that series thinking, oh, South Africa cricket is solved. Watch that series thinking that their batters got away with what they got away with. I would think that having watched Netherlands, South Africa is so much better. There's nothing specifically Ryan Campbell. Is he back in charge? I think he's back in charge. Um, could do from that perspective um, to be able to, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything obvious anyway in me watching them. The most obvious thing is can you, can you attack with three or four slips and get them three down, three down for 50 or 60? knowing that they're, they're two batters then are going to have to you know play within themselves for a long time because they're going to be a little bit terrified of losing more wickets that they bat at number seven. I don't think that's anything different than the Netherlands would do, though, than what England would do. But maybe if you really wanted to risk it and they're batting first, you know, 
you have three slips or two slips in a gully or whatever situation and really, really try and attack them. Again, that also depends on, you know, maybe someone like Ben Meeker and being fit and available to bowl for them. But hey, they've done it once. Have another go at it. Christopher says, uh, how would you be looking at an England 11 for the World Cup? Is Rashid then a Livingston Ali enough spin? Uh, well, they can also, I mean, Will Jacks is an interesting one there. And am I missing? Is there someone else who can bowl spin? Uh, and and obviously Joe Root is the other option there. Um, I think Stokes will play. I think he will come back. And, and um, So I think he will come back and I think they will pick him. So that will also help a little bit with those middle overs. Um, well, you know, the fifth bowler overs. Um, so from that perspective, you'll have, you, would you be able to have Root, Ali, Livingston? Yeah, I don't know where Livingston fits into that. Uh, but yeah, it, I, I think it's really interesting from that from that thinking. But they will be able to squeeze some out of Root as well. So they do have flexibility if they need it from that perspective. Um, but I would, I, I would think that they would pick Stokes. I think I'd find it hard not to pick Stokes, if we're being honest. Renee says, the T Natarajan have the most memorable one test career ever. Oh, not even close. Um, uh, look up Rodney Redmond, who was Aaron Redmond's dad. You may have to look up Aaron Redmond, though, at this point. He hasn't played in a while. Uh, who played for New Zealand. Or, well, both of them played for New Zealand, obviously. Rodney Redmond, he make 150. He made a lot of runs in his one test. Uh, there's the West Indian whose name I've forgotten, but it's not, is it Andy G? I want to say Guanaratna, but that's not right, is it? That sounds like a Sri Lankan name to begin with. Um, but there was a, a yeah, West Indian player. There's also one, one of the best ones that uh, ever is Fred Tate, Morris Tate's father. So Morris Tate uh, goes on to be a great bowler for England, but his dad played one test. He was picked over someone like Wilfred Rhodes. It may not have been over Wilfred Rhodes, but it was he was picked over a really good player. <laughs> so it was a really contentious, you know, pick. You're dropping a great for some guy. He comes in. I'm trying to remember the full situation, but I think when Australia are just edging ahead in the game, England have a chance to shut them out, and Fred Tate do- drops a really bad catch, and then. My memory is Fred Tate is batting at the end as the number 10 or a number 11. And maybe it's the last guy to go out as they lose by like two or three runs. I should, I should know. It's, it's 1901 test match, I think. It's an incredible series where there were so many close matches. Um, yeah, but the Fred Tate one, I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that was one of those moments in cricket where someone is absolutely remembered for what was one of the worst moments of their life. And obviously his son came back to avenge him. Um, uh, I think, you know, I don't think we'll be talking about Team Natarajan uh, in 120 years time for his first, if he, if he only plays one test, for his uh, only test. Um, trying to think if I'm missing anyone else. But yeah, New Zealand, West Indies, England, those are the three main ones off, off the top of my head where someone did something absolutely remarkable. Um, and then, disappeared brighton coverdale did a great series on one test players um i don't know if you just put in if you google brighton coverdale one test some brilliant stories out there aditya says do you think josh oh he's done a josh pulled the josh uh uh, do you think josh butler deserves a place in the odi goat discussion yes definitely um he averages 40 plus with a straight rate in excess of 110 these numbers make him one of a kind um and he has 1100s batting outside the top four. Yes, I think if he retires right now, he's 
He's certainly not in the top three. I don't think he can move. Um, yeah, I don't think he can move any of the top three guys or top four even. So if you've got Viv, AB de Villiers, Sachin and Birat, don't think he enters that. He's probably, if he retires right now, a really interesting one because he goes into that sort of Michael Bevan, uh, MS Dhoni, uh position. The difference is I just think he has more striking numbers than they do. I mean, Michael Bevan's impact on Monday cricket was immense and Dhoni's was even more so. Butler's, but their numbers don't look quite as incredible as Butler's do in his era. So from that perspective, uh, I think Butler certainly deserves to be in it. But I think if he's going to get into that top four, you know, probably he probably needs quite a few more years, I would have thought, at the kind of numbers that he's currently doing. He probably just won't play enough one-day cricket, if we're being honest. So um, it might just, that might be the thing that curtails him. But just off the top of my head, I find it hard not to have him in the top 10 of all time, I would have thought. And that's completely off the top of my head, you know, um, of the best, you know, I don't know where he can pick. It's, I, and it's really tricky to compare him to play someone like Javed Mindo, who, a bit like Michael Bevan, changed the way we played the game. Maybe Mike, maybe Butler has as well, Wayne, at this point. I'm not sure. Uh, really good question. Uh, let us have an ad. And uh, when we come back from the ad, I will get to some of the uh, chat uh, questions in the room. Kyle says, what does a successful Major League Cricket debut season look like in terms of viewership or fan penetration within the States? Uh, and is a single location tourney here to stay or just a one-year thing? Certainly, that will be a one. Well, I mean, I, I shouldn't say a one-year thing. They might do it for the first couple of years, but wouldn't imagine that they would want to do that much more than that. Um, so, you know, Major League Cricket would certainly be looking at branching out. A successful season, is, I know this is going to sound stupid, but that it's broadcast successfully, that people not just in the US watch it, that the players are paid on time, uh, that it's obvious that it's going to have a second season. For a T20 tournament, that is a successful season. <laughs> I know that sounds absolutely stupid, but that's how low the bar is. I think for Major League Cricket, because of the amount of money involved, uh, I don't know how, I, I wouldn't be too concerned about the um, TV rights, uh, sorry, the, the, the ground. Uh, but you'd want, you'd want a healthy, you know, I don't even know what success is uh, in the American market, but you'd want between 500,000 and a million people watching the games on TV, at least your key games and perhaps your finals. Um, streaming, social media, all that sort of stuff matters um, as well. You want it so that it's part of the T20 conversation and you, and you also want it at a point where perhaps other markets are starting to watch it a little bit. Even if, I know it doesn't work particularly well for India, but even if you can get you know a little bit of you know, late night watching in, in the UK, you know, get, get some people watching in the US, uh, sorry, West Indies, um, a little bit in New Zealand and Australia, those sorts of things I think all play a part um, in in helping it make make it feel like it's a little bit more successful. But yeah, actual numbers, I don't know where they would be going, but I, I w- would want them to have a couple of games where, the, and I'm not just talking TV numbers, I'm talking about the global streaming slash um, viewership, maybe even radio, if they have radio, of between half a million and a million a couple of times would 
be enough. Um, but you'd have to talk to them because they've put so much money into it. So I don't know. It's very hard for me because the economics of the Major League Cricket is so warped compared to a normal T20 um, season. And more importantly, most T20 seasons, we don't know how many people are watching anyway. We don't know how half of them are successful. That's why I go back to my original thing. Does everyone get paid on time? Does it look like a proper cricket product? Um, you know, uh, are, those sorts of things are usually the most important things of the T20 League. And you would assume the Major League Cricket would do most of those fairly well. Jay says, how far are we from seeing a fully-fledged uh, continental qualifiers for world events? So, you know, uh, like a, a World Cup where, where, you know, football World Cup. A while away, I think we'd need to have good, strong 20 teams. And what do we have now? Maybe 13 to 14 decent teams. Um, I think if we had a good 20 teams, you, you know, 20 to 25, it gets harder to just give the top teams automatically in the tournament. But I also think it's a ways away. But certainly, I mean, the teams that you're talking about would have to vote for it for themselves. Um, at the moment, that doesn't seem that likely. Uh, but as the game continues to grow, maybe US, Japan market get, in, get involved and those sorts of things. I think, you know, they'll be quite rightly saying, um, uh, as, as it goes ahead, we should get a right to qualify um, and, you know, not be playing for one or two spots, but be playing for all the spots like everyone else does. Um, but yeah, I can't see that happening anytime soon um, based on what I know about uh, cricket. All Things Cinema Vodcast says, a very basic question, since when and why only two fielders are allowed behind square on the leg side? I think I saw a comment here saying since body line. That's a very common misconception. Actually, the laws didn't change after body line. Weirdly enough, they didn't even, I wouldn't say body line didn't play a part because I think that would be incorrect, but body line did not play as big a part as you would expect. So body line partly worked because you could put a leg, slip, a leg slip, a leg gully, a fine leg, and deep backward square, and you could have even more fielders there if you want. You would bowl from very wide in the wicket or even from around the wicket. Bill Vos uh, came from you know left arm angle and just bowl bouncer, bouncer, bouncer. And, of course, people are either defending or they're hooking. Um, and in those days, they didn't have helmets or arm guards. And it just meant a little bit like Neil Wagner uh, with his fields. It just meant that it was kind of inevitable that something was going to go wrong eventually. And with more fielders behind square meant that any mistake was likely to be picked up. But so body line actually starts before the body line series. Uh, the West Indians are the first international team to do it, but I think even some county teams have tried it before then. And it, of course it makes sense. That's why we still do it now, more or less. You know, uh, bowl at the body, put all the fielders on in one part of the ground and, you know, make the players take risks or try and survive um, at, you know, physically as well. So that, because body line is so badly received, it kind of disappears from cricket straight away. What happens after World War II is we have a lot of off spinners bowling leg stump lines, spinning the ball massively down the leg stump with two leg slips, um, three, you know, a, a short fine leg. I think it was a short fine leg because it would have been a catching for the sweep, wouldn't it? And then maybe two guys out for the sweep. Um, and it was horrible, horrible cricket. Absolutely. Most of the law changes that have ever been made is just because the cricket has been horrible. Like when people get really upset about catches on the boundary or all these other things, it's like, is it making cricket hor more horrible to watch? That was. Bowling off spin down the leg side on purpose was about the worst thing you could do. And so one way to stop teams from being able to do it was to limit the amount of players behind leg. My memory of it is it had been mentioned before. I think in-swing bowlers had done a similar thing in, in another period of cricket. And it's 
terrible. It's terrible, terrible cricket. <laughs> Try it with your friends if you want. It, it's just absolutely terrible. Um, and so if you bowl on the offside, you still have the ability to hit the ball on the leg side. Uh, offside play is it opens up the game so much more than just leg side play does. And I don't think cricket would be a very big sport if everyone could just dart the ball down the leg side. It's another reason why you can't pitch the ball outside leg stump for LBWs because, again, bowlers would try and do that and it takes away all the more attractive parts of batting. Um, it would make it a horrible, stupid game to watch. And, and again, if you don't believe me, play these rules with your friends and you will see in 20 minutes why it doesn't work. So that's uh, that's the history of why there are only two fielders behind square on the leg side. Uh, Greeny says, Finch on the mic in the BBL. Um, I, haven't, I haven't heard him actually on any of the games I've watched. How did an Australian great spend 10 years in cricket always under pressure for his spot? Uh, personal reasons versus the media ex-players. No, media ex-players like him. I, I think you've asked, I reckon you've asked about him before, Greeny. When you're saying Australian great, he's obviously a fantastic one-day cricketer, but he's not an all-time great. He's just below that level, and he did have weaknesses within his game, and he had long periods where he really did struggle, and he didn't have the Red Bull cricket uh, background, and I think there was always a theory that that meant he wasn't quite as strong as other players. That could be unfair, of course. They could be wrong about that. That's perfectly reasonable. But he did have chinks within his game, and I think that they showed, and he often went through big periods where he didn't do very well and, and big periods where he did uh, do very well. Um, and we all remember the ones where you know, he'd walk out and get LBW over and over again or that the nicking off era, uh, era he had earlier um, in his career. He's still a fantastic player, but the Australian batting was fairly deep. Um, there, you know, there's, there was talent around at all times. There's some very good players in his era that didn't get as much of a go as he did. Um, and I think not playing test cricket, does, especially in Australian cricket, I think you are looked at as a weaker player. Um, I mean, put it this way, Michael Bevan never looked like being dropped. Michael Bevan was an ODI great batter, as we just discussed, and yet um, barely talked about anymore. And, you know, the whole conversation has moved on from him. You know, I don't think Finch was a better player than Michael Bevan. And, you know, so they, all these things matter. Didn't help that he's batting. That's the other thing with opening the batting, I would say. If you open the batting with someone who's slightly better than you, generally that's you know you, you know ask herb sutcliffe I and mean, who's there aren't many players like desmond Haynes was fantastic but you know um langer might be one of the few guys who kind of gets almost boosted um at times um considering his record uh swami nathan says what explains the sociological phenomenon of subcontinental origin cricketers being spinners in the west that would be, I would assume, a similar thing that you see in the NFL, where different positions in the NFL go to different races based on stereo, uh, stereotypical ways that we think about them. We've seen lots of Asian people be good at spin. I think that would be part of it. I would, it's possible that Asian people have a better background in spin bowling in that if you come from a family of spin bowl, you know, if you come from a family of Asian cricketers, chances are perhaps they have more of a say like so my dad for instance was a cricket coach but had no idea about spin at all um he didn't know how to bowl it or bat against it or anything it just was so foreign to him whereas he had millions of theories on seam bowling and, and batting against seam bowling and all those sorts of things so i think generations come from that but i do think that there is a typecast element to it and we see that in cricket in different 
positions anyway. Uh, you know, one of the other famous ones is the, you know, uh, South Africa and their fast bowlers, right? In fact, you might even say West Indies and their fast bowlers, you know, the Asian bowlers compared to, uh, you know, uh, the the black bowlers. Um, but in, in South Africa, we know that, you know, young athletes come through cricket and even if they show batting talent, quite often if they're tall and athletic, they're pushed into bowling. Those things happen. It's a natural thing. The NFL is really interesting about it. There's a, there's a great article I read years about years ago about all the different positions and how they ended up with different races in each different position. And then also just even when you don't do that, different body types um, uh, that you do. So I think part of it is probably background, but I think more of it maybe is that sort of um, typecast um, situation as well. I'm trying to think. You've got Amla. You've got Kawaja, who you mentioned. I'm trying to think. Is um, oh Nasser Hussein, another Asian batter. Um, I suppose Hamid has come through of recent times. Uh, you got plays like Vikram Slunky and everyone else. Uh, Dav Watmore is another one. So there are Asian players who play who have played for Western countries as batters as well. You know, Ranji. I suppose if you want to go back <laughs> a long a long way, um, Dulip Sindhi as, as well. Um, so it would be interesting to have a look at what those numbers are uh, and go back. But yeah, I do think that there is a sort of an inherent bias. And and the bias is actually quite often against Western spinners as well, who aren't seen to be canny. They're seen to be a little bit more robotic and they don't have the tricks of the trade. So, and that's what this NFL argue, uh, uh, article was talking about. It's like, weirdly they've created a situation where there are biases against white players as well because you know white players play this position and black players play this position well that's really limiting so white players are then funneled into those positions even if they're not suited towards them and black players are then funneled into their position and obviously that doesn't make as much sense so it's, it's a really really interesting question um uh having a look at it i'd have to have a look at the numbers as well to see you know how how deep it goes uh, there was also um grinda sandu as well i'm trying to think of anyone else i feel like I'm missing another western oh of course there's a couple um england have had a few um asian um scene bowls as well so it's there i i feel like it's been stronger of recent times but maybe it hasn't you know deepak patel um for new zealand uh would he be one of the first it's a brilliantly interesting question Subash says, is it possible to manipulate DRS and Sneko by the home broadcasters to help the home team? So, yes and no. I have said for a long time that it should be independent. And so you certainly still have that. A good, it's very hard to manipulate though. What it is, it is possible to withhold and it is possible to you not be as helpful as you could be. So I think that bias is in it. I've said for ages, it doesn't really make sense. We're going to have neutral umpires everywhere and then we're going to have a third a third umpire crew that is not. I think the bigger issue isn't that, although it, it certainly could play a part. I think the bigger issue is that, and, and home broadcasters don't show things. There's a reason why people don't get done for tampering the ball at home as much as they do away. Um, I remember a few years ago, I'm still angry at Sky about this. That's probably why Sky never get me on. Um, Joss Butler had his hands in front of the stumps for a wicket and they showed it once and I asked for a replay and everyone at Sky blanked me forever um, after that. And it was like, if that was in a way we could keep it, they just would have shown it. So those things happen. Not saying that that was, you know, the third umpire wasn't looking at Butler's gloves in that situation, but it should have been shown again. Um, 
what I would say is third umpires should be specialist umpires. They should be in a bunker working with other specialists in a neutral situation, doing their job that way. Um, that I think is a far bigger issue than worrying about um, this sort of thing, Subash. But that is something that a no brainer. Um, and we've already seen it with other sports. Phil says, will Harry Tector go on to become Ireland's greatest all-rounder? Has Harry Tector been bowling? If I missed him, bowling? Look, I think he, he's got a long way to go uh, as a cricketer. I really, really like him. I wonder what his best format is. I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, you know, really, really interesting cricketer. But uh, I, I would say this, unless someone younger comes along who's better, he's a very good chance of being the best batter that Ireland has produced for Ireland. Owen Morgan's probably going to be better than him. Ed Joyce's best years, probably. I know he was around for Ireland, but his best years were probably playing for England as well. Uh, Paul Sterling is fantastic. Andy Balboni's had some really good years. There's some good players there. I think Harry Tactor can be the best batter for Ireland in that he'll be around the most and will be able to do the most damage. Josh says, do you think there's an advantage of practicing on an actual pitch with fielders as opposed to in a caged net? Yes. Um, I think in cricket, we don't do it enough. Um, I certainly have pushed for center wicker practice a lot when I've worked as an analyst. There's usually logistical reasons why you can't do it. And, you know, there's safety concerns as well and all sorts of things. But yes, I think, I think nets is really good when you're grooving your game for one uh, sort of thing. And I think nets are actually really good for first class cricket and test cricket. One day cricket T20, I actually think the match situation and where the fielders are and what the bowler is trying to do is far more important. And I also think you want to see how far the ball has gone, all those sorts of things. I really like match, uh, you know, um, I was going to call it match practice. I suppose it's, I don't know, um, center wicket practice, whatever you want to call it. I really like that um, and think it should be used more. And I think the players should be sent it's funny, I was talking to a batting coach recently, a player was going through a, uh, a lean spell and he was saying, what would you do with him? And I, I was saying, well, I would send him out into the middle into this sort of environment that you're talking about um, and, and give him 12 balls. And so that's all you have. What can you do with these 12 balls? And by the end, we want you to be smashing it. Um, because his game was grooved, but you could just tell he just wasn't thinking about T20 cricket the right way when he was going out there, you know, and trying to say to him, you're, you're facing 12, you know, 12 balls every match in your position. Let's see what we can do with the 12 balls today and tomorrow and see what we can learn from that. Um, he was still going to be doing range hitting and probably some throwdowns. He didn't need the nets, was my point. And also the other thing I wanted him to do was really to focus in on what kind of bowlers he was facing, you know, what kind of plans he needed for those sort of bowls. So having two bowlers alternating was a much better thing than having four bowlers in the nets um, and forgetting what the last bowler had bowled to you and all those sorts of things. Uh, do you think there is a way to normalize batting averages and bowling averages in tests and ODIs to compare them to the golden 1970s generation? I'm not sure the 1970s was golden generation and early 2000. Uh, yeah, uh, so if you're talking about batting averages, it's called runs above average. That's probably the best metric. Uh, the other thing that uh, we look at is, you know, look at a, specifically a, you know, an opener versus other openers of their era. Um, you get a really good idea. Uh, the ODI thing, because um, you mentioned ODIs as well, um, the problem with that, of course, is uh, economy rates and how you have to look at that. So, that, you know, there's, a, there's a, an extra part of it. But, yeah, runs above average uh, in batting and bowling uh, will tell you pretty much a player's worth 
uh, more or less over a longer period of time. So far better than just a batting average does because you can play in a spiked era or a deflated era or whatever it may be. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so we, we use that a lot. We've got a big video series coming out. I suppose it will be towards the end of the India Australia series or might be be after that or the England New Zealand series. We're still working on it. Um, uh, I've got Cheyenne Khan working on it with me as well. Um, it's really exciting. Um, and we're looking at ranking. This is just test players, uh, but we're looking at ranking players um, uh, and coming up with, I don't want to say a definitive list. Well, it won't be a definitive list anyway, because two years time, some other player will, will join it. But we're trying to come up with a really good metric of what you need to uh, factor in when you're looking at the best players of all time. You know, uh, it's more about the, uh, what you need to understand, especially, you know, in some sports, they've been playing a similar amount of games, whereas that's not the case in cricket. So, you know, we kind of have to factor in players who played, you know, two and 3,000, uh, made two or 3,000 test runs at times, just because, you know, a war inter- intervened or their country didn't play a lot of test matches in, you know, George Headley's case or um, whatever that may be. Uh, and so, you know, you might have a situation where, a player plays as many test matches in an eight-year career as you know Jack Hobbs did over what thirty years. <laughs> um, felt like thirty years, I'm sure, to him. Uh, so it's a really, really interesting one of of how you look at you know longevity and peak, how many peak years a player had, and you know averages home and away, and averages versus other top order players. You know, do you have to deflate openers a little bit? Uh, because openers uh, usually have a slightly lower average than everyone else, all these sorts of things. Um, It's been really fascinating and fun, and and we will get to it. It's uh, it's really cool. Uh, It's a great project to get involved with so far. I'm just going to play one more ad, then I'll just go through the room, and I will mop up anything else, and then uh, we can all go about our lives. We got a super chat from PG Back. Wise flat accurate zero turn spin not rated by coaches uh are you talking about dart bowlers pj back i'm not exactly sure i think i think the spin thing is sideways spin is probably the easiest thing to see and if you're not an expert in spin bowling that's obviously what you're going to go with but also traditionally that's obviously what a spin bowler does right they spin the ball away from the um bat or uh, you know inside the bat as we learn more about spin bowling, I think we learn a lot about revs on the ball and top spin and drop and everything else. And we're certainly uh, getting more and more information from Hawkeye on that. And then something like, you know, the Rapsodo system they use in baseball would tell us even more about all those sorts of things. In that sort of situation, it would, you could, like, I would love to go back and use Hawkeye um, and Rapsodo on someone like Anil Kumble to be able to see why he was so effective in the way that he was. But I think if your question is why do bowlers who don't spin it um, that much not um, given as much attention as bowlers who do um, spin it, it's just because it's easier to see. And generally, that's what we see as being successful. It's kind of not why a spin is successful, if that makes sense. There's a lot of things, but you do have to obviously turn the ball or deviate the ball or be able to deceive in some way or another um uh, uh, from that perspective the other thing is that if you bowl very flat spin i'm talking more maybe in well in, in any form of cricket if it's not going above the eyes and dropping below the eyes if it's not dropping massively on on a different length because you're not putting a lot of revs on the ball 
it's very hard to deceive very uh, top level players. And eventually they might score slowly off you um, for a long period of time, but eventually they will find a way to score off you. Um, you want, you want that, you want that ability to be able to drop the ball, move the ball and everything else. Corrector, uh, La, La Estrella, Disan, Esteban. I don't know what any of that means. I've once heard there is no very little leg spin in Bangladesh. It is. They actually tried to force leg spinners into every BPL team. Is this true? How did this occur? I think it's because of the kind of wickets they get in Bangladesh where, so wrist spinners get more overspin and finger spinners get more side spin. And finger spinners usually can bowl a little bit faster than wrist spinners. Um, and certainly have the ability to up their speed much more naturally than wrist spinners do. And so Bangladesh pitches don't bounce particularly high. Um, and you can bowl quite quickly with your finger spin and still spin the ball around. And 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 the bounce doesn't matter as much. So I think a lot of the natural advantages that wrist spinners have um, is negated. And also I think that in general, if you have spinning conditions where the ball's going to spin for a finger spinner regardless that's a much easier thing to do much more accurately and a little bit faster whereas leg spin you probably need a little bit more assistance off the speed of the wicket so perhaps that's why um uh, you know leg spin was maybe most popular at times in places like south africa and australia because you do get a little bit more spin and bounce in those places sorry I don't mean spin and bounce. I mean pace and bounce off the wicket. Uh, Nimesh says, do you feel there would be a fundamental difference in Dhoni's batting numbers had he not been thrust into the captain in 2007? Yeah, I think he, uh, yes. I, I would have to go through the numbers, you know, specifically to 100% agree with you. But he came up recently in something I was doing. And yeah, I do think that's right. I think that in that case, you would certainly see a situation where He's a different kind of player, I think, in part because of the leadership. I I'm assuming it's because of the leadership, of course. It may not be. Last one from, uh, am I just miles from the screen today? Or did it? Oh, it's on 80%. Whoops. thought I was going blind. Uh, uh, sorry, Vabehav says, uh, do you think England's rotation policy and workload management in some way hindering their potential, particularly in ODIs? No. <laughs> no. I okay. There are three formats of cricket. You cannot play all three flat out all the time anymore. No one can. No team ever will again. That's gone. International cricket may go, but that part of it is certainly gone. Look at what England have done is there are times when they basically sold their test. And the one, one thing I would say about basketball is the test team wasn't getting to pick from the best players all the time. A lot of their best players were being rested before basketball, right? That's a really important thing to remember. That certainly played a small part of many other reasons why they weren't very good. Uh, their T20 team wasn't particularly uh, very strong for a long period of time, right? Again, why was that the case? They had other things that they were planning for. The 20, 2019 World Cup was more important. Then you had the T20 World Cups. They knew they had two of them back-to-back. -back. Suddenly, T20 cricket was the most important thing for English cricket. And they were playing it everywhere and you know, doing it in that way. Now it's one-day cricket. And they're starting to do that. What that first thing they have to do is work out what their team is. And I'm not sure they know 100% exactly where they're going to go um, at the moment. Although, you know, Joffre's come back certainly makes things a lot easier for them. And the Ben Stokes thing probably makes things more difficult, but also at least gives them another option. We have to get used to, especially Australia, England, and it will eventually be India, although they're not quite doing it yet, but they're not probably not far away. We have to get used to the best teams 
um, peaking for major events because I think that's what international cricket is going to be from now on. And so I've got no problem with the way that England have been playing uh, and, and the way that they're thinking about everything at the moment. That doesn't mean they're going to win the World Cup. It doesn't mean that it's even the right way to win it. But if they want to be successful in everything, I think you have to go, okay, well, now we're going to play a lot of one days. Now we're going to play a lot of this. Look at J- you know uh, Jason Roy. I think I might have said in a previous podcast, he hadn't played uh, a list A game for Surrey since the last World Cup, 50-over game for Surrey since the last World Cup. These guys aren't playing a lot of it. Um, and so they're probably, you know, they're throwing guys in, seeing what different moves and everything uh, are going to work for them and take it from there. I think this is the future. Um, uh, you know, a whole new level of, well, we don't really have to win these. What we have to do is learn this lesson from these. And we saw with England before that last World Cup, really trying to find the best left arm seamer. And eventually they decided that that was Sam Curran and he was player of the tournament. He probably shouldn't have been player of the tournament, but that's another one. Um, uh, thanks to everyone for a great, great uh, comment section today and great work on the Patreon as well. Remember, follow your uh, uh, 99.94 podcast if you get a chance. We put a great video up about uh, a stunt person that very few people know, uh, Joffrey Brown. If you watched any action, if you ever watched Jurassic Park or Speed, um, certainly worth watching that. Um, it was a fantastic story. Uh, it was uh, a lot of fun to be able to do. Uh, what else do we have? We have the Chris Lynn thing. Uh, I'm trying to think what else we have. We have something coming up about Dane Van Neerkirk. Uh, well, it's actually less about her and more about the entire situation of fitness and cricket. Uh, that will be up in the next couple of days uh, and some other really good videos. But we're working on trying to get uh, an India, Australia and um, the Women's World Cup content going in time for their tournaments, if we can. Um, uh, but uh, heap, there's heaps of stuff. I want to do stuff, something on Mickey Arthur as well. I might do a couple of different ones on, on him. Um, and... I suppose when he takes the Pakistan job, but if slash when, uh, but thanks to everyone for listening and er- everywhere. Remember you can listen now on Facebook. Uh, you can listen on YouTube. You can listen on the podcast network, or you can listen over on Twitter. I'm everywhere. You know, you can listen to me in all four places at once. I think that's possible. Anyway, uh, thanks for um, everyone who came into the chat and uh, all the questions and I'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makanda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs> <laughs>